Dad and the other adults had a tough call to make. Stay and fortify or get the group moving. Of the 817 residents of Milo, roughly 500 stayed after the initial outbreak. We picked up 350 more refugees, mostly children from neighboring towns. A couple of teachers from the elementary and preschools loaded up their entire student body into buses and hit the road. Those brave souls will be forever heroes in my mind. However, after they arrived, our folks realized planning an exodus had become next to impossible. They debated anyway, weighing both scenarios, food rations, transportation. There were a lot of arguments, a lot of throwing things. Adults gathered around noon to come to a decision. The sun set and they were still heatedly at an impasse. It seemed half wanted to cut and run and half wanted to stay. I could hear my dad's voice through the floorboards, booming that division was suicide. I finally got the courage to duck in the planning room at about 9 p.m. that night, driven by fear that dad had been gone too long. He ordered me to sit in the corner, which sounded a lot better than going back upstairs. That's when they came. There was a quick knock on the front door. I had about jumped out of my seat. With guns drawn, one of the men answered it. When the door had opened, he sort of stood to the side at attention like he was a doorstop. In the doorway were three figures straight out of a Vogue magazine, two men and a woman. As one, they entered the hall and the air temperature had seemed to drop. The woman was blonde, almost six feet tall, and built lean like she owned the catwalk. Her blue eyes were haunting, her makeup heavy across her lids to increase the effect. She wore a little black dress and six-inch red pumps. Not exactly the outfit I would pick for the end of the world. Her pale hair slicked back and pulled into a high ponytail, which flipped as she walked. The men were equally spellbinding. One who was a cliché, long black hair and a face that belonged on a romance book cover. His body was the only thing that broke the mold. He wasn't lean and frail like most vampires are portrayed. He was a brick house that had been wrapped in an Armani suit. A suit that I could only assume was completely custom. His arms were easily wider than my waist. He towered over the female, so I could only guess at his height. The third one was smaller than the other two, probably only 5'10 or so. I didn't get a good look at him as he was hanging back from the others. I may have had my dad not shielded me immediately and started barking orders. He then rushed me back up those oak suburban stairs faster than you could say marmalade. Even so, I knew what had happened by morning. Everyone did. Even so, I knew what had happened by morning. Everyone did. They weren't human. What had entered the hall that night were creatures commonly known as vampires. They had offered an arrangement, one that most would examine from a thousand different angles and perspectives, one that many would outright refuse. It was an arrangement that, despite these facts, the adults in our group readily accepted. Hell, I heard it took the adults less than an hour to unanimously agree to the terms. When the sun set, the vampires would protect our band of survivors. In exchange, we would offer ourselves up to them for sustenance. Their leader, Caius, vowed no humans would die from the feedings. They didn't require exorbitant amounts. That first night, those undead creeps cleared an eight-mile perimeter, 
undoubtedly saving us from being completely overrun. That was ten years ago. Now we have the colony, no longer called Milo, Iowa, or even Iowa after the Indians who once roamed this land. It's now just Junction, given our strategic location at the center of the landmass. What's so strategic about it? After the wall went up, we discovered a very important fact. We were not the only ones. The vampires had made their deal everywhere they found the living. Their new, feudal era had begun.